If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hello, beautiful human, and welcome to another episode of In the Details. I'm your host, Karen Allen. Today, my guest is Laura Gassner-Otting. She has spent 25 years studying leaders and stewarding them through massive career and life changes. But she's really well known for her TED Talk, Wonder Hell, which has over 1.3 million views on TED.com. According to Laura, Wonder Hell hits on the fact that success can be wonderful, but it can also be hell. She has a book now available. It actually came out in April. So by the time you're listening to this episode, it is definitely available for purchase. And this is her second best seller. The first one, Limitless. The second one, Wonder Hell. And it's funny because as we were getting ready to hit record and she mentioned that it was uh, number two on the list of bestsellers, she said, yes, living in my own Wonder Hell. So I just want you to know, as we are getting into this conversation, you are in for a treat to hear from very personal, intimate insights. But also, Laura has interviewed over 100 glass ceiling shatterers, Olympic athletes, startup unicorns, and others to really understand how to overcome the crushing combination of doubt, vulnerability, imposter syndrome, and burnout, all of these crazy things that come along with success. So if you have not grabbed your pen, your paper, your tablet, wherever you like to take notes, make sure you do that because we are getting ready to get in the details with Laura. Laura, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me, Karen. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into this concept of wonder hell. That's that's for sure. <laughs> but I would love to start back and just kind of hear what inspired you to explore this concept and ultimately write a book about the dual nature of success. Well, so I spend a lot of my time thinking about this question of why success doesn't equal happiness. As you mentioned, I spent 25 years in executive search, and it was my job to call the most successful people, right? Like bold-faced people in bold-faced organizations, bold-faced names, and recruit them away on behalf of my clients. So it sounds like a hard job, right? Call super successful people and try to steal them away. But despite all this success, they weren't very happy, which is why they all called me back. And I was so fascinated by this question. So my last book, Limitless, was about how do we find both success and happiness? But then that book comes out. And as you mentioned, it debuts at number two on the Washington Post bestseller list. And I was so tired from all the work that went into the book launch. I was on this red-eye flight and I was just at the story that I tell in, in, in the TEDx talk that the part of my brain that normally dictates my humility was just nowhere to be found. And suddenly I heard this voice inside my head going, this thing has legs. It can be bigger. You can be bigger. Someone's got to be at number one. Why not you? Washington Post. What about the Wall Street Journal? And suddenly I saw this potential. I saw this image of myself that I didn't even know was available to me last week, last month, last year. And I couldn't get rid of it. And I thought about all those internal candidates that I interviewed during my career in executive search, who all eventually ended up leaving if they didn't get the job. And I realized it was because they had the same moment. Interviewing for that internal job means you have to wear the clothes of that role and speak in the voice of that role and think in the mindset of that role. And once we see ourselves in this bigger new way, we can't unsee it. So I had that moment myself where I was like, it's amazing, it's exciting, it's wonderful. And also, 
what else can I do? It's now I'm full of anxiety and stress and uncertainty and imposter syndrome. It's wonderful and it's hell. So I actually wrote Wonder Hell because I needed to figure out how to get out of Wonder Hell. And in the process of talking to all the people who I, I you know, I happened to meet in green rooms over the course of the previous couple of years, I was like, wait a minute. Like if I need to learn how to do this, there's probably lessons here that other people need. And so that turned into the talk, which then turned into the book. And now I've debuted at number two again, but this time on the Wall Street Journal bestseller. So I'm still in wonder hell because now I'm like, well, how do I get to number one? And how do I get to the New York Times? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like when you set your sight on something that it happens, that is without a doubt, Laura. <laughs> well, you know, I'm one of those people who's sort of all in, like, I'm not like, a small talker and I'm not a like, you know, I kind of like social butterfly around. Like I am either 100%, I'm either all in or I'm all out. And so, you know, when I've decided that there's something I want to do, I, I, it gives me this intrinsic motivation. Like, you know, that like there's this difference between extrinsic motivation, right? These look good goals that look good on the wall, but we don't actually really care about them. And then the goals we actually really want. And what I noticed in my career in executive search was that the the young and hungries who'd come ask me for career advice, the, the ones of those who actually succeeded, who actually achieved their goals were the ones who respected their goals and feared their goals so much that they almost whispered them. They couldn't even speak them full-throatedly out loud. And so for me, there's this there's this moment of, is this something I really, really want? Because then if you do, it doesn't feel like sacrifice to try to get to it. It feels like investment to try to get to it. Yes. That is such a very key mind shift right there of, okay, I have to sacrifice. I have to do all these things. And then it feels like arduous work. And then you're like, actually, I get to invest my time. I get to invest my resources. I get to expand my mindset to all of these limitless possibilities that are available for me, which instantly changes the energy that you bring to that experience. And if you're the one who's dictating the goal, you can also dictate the U-turn or the left turn or the right turn. So like if I am partway towards a goal and I say, actually, doing the work and the investment and opening up my mind has not only shown me that I don't like it and I don't want it. It's actually showing me that there are other things beyond these doors that I didn't even know were options. And now I'm going to go for one of them instead. So it doesn't become this failure. It becomes a fulcrum from which we grow and we iterate and we change and mm-hmm. we innovate. And I think, you know, if there is a goal that someone else handed you and then you don't achieve it, you feel like a failure because you think everyone else is watching you. But if there's a goal that you set for yourself and you're working towards it and in the working towards it, you learn something about yourself, either I didn't set the goal big enough and me actually, I actually want to go farther or the goal wasn't the right goal for me. So since I set the goal, I can change the goal too. That's called growth. That's called maturity. Like in science, people praise that. So I think that we have to remember that the goals that you can't be insatiably hungry for someone else's goal. So like, what do you care about? What do you want to go for? Because that's when we really put our whole selves towards it. I think one of the things that kind of gets in the way there are societal expectations. And I know this is, this is absolutely me. I, anytime that I share or I say, oh, I think this is it. I'm usually speaking from personal experience. (laughs) And so when you think about that and, and the different goals that maybe people start to pursue or, or if they feel like they didn't reach it and they feel like a failure, you know, all of that, it may be 
they were working towards the wrong goal. As you mentioned, maybe it wasn't their own intrinsic goal. And I know that, you know, Limitless, your first book actually focuses a little more on that concept of, you know, ignoring everybody else and really focusing on carving your own path. So my question is, how can individuals start to tap into that courage and break free from either societal expectations, environmental expectations from the people who are around them? How can they start to break free from that and start to pursue their own definition of success? I think starting there is important. Then we can talk about some of the challenges that come to you once you get to that side of it. (laughs) So I think the first thing to do is to understand where our definitions of success came from. So when I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher who was like, you know, Laura, you're a really argumentative young woman. You should become a lawyer. And you won't be surprised, Karen, to find out that the first thing I said to her was, well, I think you're wrong because, you know, I was argumentative, right? (laughs) Way to stay on brand, Laura. (laughs) Way to stay on brand. But still in my mind, first subconsciously, because I was in fourth grade, but later consciously, I created a path that got me to law school because that was put into my brain as like, that's the definition of success. My teacher thought that that's who I should be. I was watching LA Law, Ally McBeal. Like I was watching all the, you know, these glamorous women who were like lady bosses online. And I was like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. And then I got to law school. And on the very first day, I looked around and I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a lawyer. This isn't right for me. And so I dropped out. And that was this sort of crushing moment where I looked at my parents. Is that a hard decision? Well, it was, it was, it was a scary decision. I would say it wasn't a hard decision because I was experiencing such organ failure rejection from being in the wrong place. So I did what a lot of people do when they're in a very terrible place for themselves. I dated the world's worst boyfriend. So I started dating this guy who was in my class at law school and he was, he was not a good person. Let's just say that he was not emotionally kind to me. Right. And, but I joke around that. I say he had uh, exquisite taste in precisely two things. The first being obviously girlfriends. Let's go. The second being unknown presidential hopefuls from tiny Southern states. And one day he was like, I'm going to give you a ride home from campus. And, uh, but I want to stop at this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. And I was like, governor who from where like Arkansas, not a chance in hell. Like what? No, like Bill Clinton, never going to win. Like no way. (laughs) We walk into this campaign office and in the corner of the campaign office is little tiny black and white TV. And on that black and white TV is then governor Bill Clinton, like dark hair still like, you know, he's giving this impassioned this impassioned plea about how there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America, which by the way, I still believe today. And he offered as a solution service, community service in exchange for college tuition. And I was like, yes, that needs to happen. And up until that point, I thought I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to become a, you know, I'm going to become a a prosecutor. I'm going to put the bad guys away. I'm going to become famous in my state. They're going to recruit me to run for, you know, U.S. Senate, I'm going to win, of course, because I'm awesome. And what I I was like, I'm going to solve all the problems. And then in that moment, in this lightning bolt moment in this campaign office, I heard a problem that could be solved in a way that wasn't me solving the problem, right? It was how do we put the right people in the right place so that they're changing themselves while they're changing the world? It's not a bunch of like, I'm going to drop into this other place and like stomp all over it with like, you know, 
me as the solution. Like we were actually doing this community from the ground up and bringing in volunteers to help with community driven solutions. And I was like, that's it. That needs to happen. So for me, it was, it, it was not a difficult decision to make. It was so obvious that that's what I needed to do. Mm. It was a difficult call to make to my parents. (laughs) That was terrifying. Now I had saved up a lot of money in high school, like literally changing bedpans in a hospital as a part-time job. And I put a backpack on my back and, and I, and I went to Europe for a few weeks right after I dropped out before I was like really into the campaign. And I, I called my parents from the basement of a hostel in Vienna from like this row of payphones. And this is like back before, you know, the iPhone or the internet or running water. So it was so scary that I literally called them from another continent where they couldn't find me. Like get to you. (laughs) That, but so, you know, it's the, I think making a decision that we are not in the right place and understanding that there is a better place for us mm-hmm. often becomes very clear when we decide we want to run towards something and not just running away from something. But it's the getting everybody around us on the same page that often is the harder part and the scarier part, I think. Mm, and maybe even letting go if they don't get on the same page. Well, yes. I mean, I am I am a firm believer that uh, sometimes we need to burn some bridges. Sometimes mm. the people who have been in our lives up until now are not necessarily the ones who should be there. Or if you can't or you don't want to burn the bridges, maybe sometimes extending the bridge a little bit, like turning down the volume on the people who necessarily aren't the, like, they aren't necessarily the ones for you. Like my mm. parents, for example, I called them. I told them I wanted to drop out of law school. They were not thrilled, you might say, but also their, oh no, you shouldn't do that. That's too scary. Wasn't, oh no, you shouldn't do that. That's too scary. It's no, no, I wouldn't want to do that. I'm too scared. Like they were worried about me. They were worried about me being safe. They were worried about me, you know, ending up after this campaign, like not having a job, not having, I wasn't in law school. I dropped out. I was gone. Like what was like, what was my path going to be? So a lot of times people in our lives are either scared for us because they're scared for themselves, or maybe they're jealous, right? Mm-hmm. They see our rise and all they see is their own stagnation, mm-hmm. or maybe they, they, you know, they just love us. They don't, they don't want us to get hurt, right? They're just really worried about that. And a lot of that comes out of their own personal experience. They can't see us through the blinders of what they've gone through. And so sometimes we just have to remember that not everybody in our life should get equal access to our decision-making. Like we Mm got to stop giving votes in our lives to people who shouldn't even have voices. And I love my parents deeply, but you know, six years ago when I sold my executive search firm to the team who helped me build it. And I'm like, I don't know, I'm going to go figure out what to do next. They're like, what are you talking about? What can you do? I was like, maybe I'll write a book. I'll become a speaker. And they were like, what, how could you do that? (laughs) They don't know me. The last time I lived in the same house is then I was 17 years old. And I put, you know, empty milk cartons back in the refrigerator and empty cars back in the garage when I was late for curfew. Like they don't, they knew me before I had a frontal lobe. So are they going to give 50 year old me advice about what to do with my career? Like, Yes, they are. But should I listen to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good answer. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I think that that's probably one of my favorite things from Limitless is that focus on carving your own path. Because you're right. As we start to create a career, and it may be a career that somebody else said we should pursue, or hopefully it's the one that you actually desire. Either way, the people that are closest to you, of course, they're going to think that they have a right, maybe I'll use air quotes there, to weigh in, especially if they're a responsibility. 
or a responsibility. I'm just trying to help. I just don't want to see you get hurt. Absolutely. And being a mama, I get that, right? Because I try to help my son navigate the complexities of this world and limit his pain every single day. (laughs) So of course that could come. But when you think about it, and I love how you pointed this out, the individuals who may be pouring into your life do not have the same vision for your life. They don't, because the their vision of the world, their perspective of the world is shaped based on their own experiences. Yes. I mean, my parents were born in the early 1940s. They grew up in, you know, like my parents both shared a one bedroom apartment, uh, you know, living on pullout sofas with their siblings in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, or in, you know, in Flatbush Avenue. Their life experience, thank you to my parents for so much privilege, was very different than my life experience. They were the first in their families to go to college. You know, it was for me, it wasn't where you're going to college, it's where you're going to graduate school. Like I had a very different experience than they did because of all the work they put in. But they still grew up in the specter of World War II and the specter of the Great Depression and the specter of the Holocaust. They still grew up with, you know, prioritizing security and safety. And you have to have a job that's like, are you a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, an accountant, like an identity, right? You are a blank. And so when I was like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, it was scary to them because they grew up with that fear. And so it becomes very hard. But can we talk about the parenting thing Mm -hmm. for a minute? So Here's what I've learned. So I, my kids are a little older than yours. They're going to be 19 and 21 in a in a couple of weeks. So, you know, I'm an empty nester. I've like launched two kids who just keep seeming to come back because I love that. That's <laughs> like amazing. A boomerang. It's, it's, a boomerang. it's amazing. I love it. It's, I like I, I if I could have dinner with anybody dead or alive now or in the future, I would have I would want to have dinner with my kids in like 70 years. Yeah. I'll be long dead by them. But 70 years because I just want to know how the story ends. Like I'm yeah. so interested. I'm so interested. But here's what I've learned about parenting. You get one choice as a parent. One, you have only one choice as a parent and you get to make that choice every single day over and over and over again. And it's this, are you going to get on their bus or are you going to get run over by their bus? Mm. Because you don't get a choice where the bus is going, if they're putting on the air conditioning, what kind of music they're playing, right? What route they're driving, you don't get a choice. But if you're on the bus, eventually they might let you pick out a song. They might let you adjust the fan. They might let you suggest maybe we should take the toll road because it's faster than these local roads. Like you don't, you don't actually get to choose their bus. Like they're born pretty much like 90% who they are. And your only choice is like, am I going to get on and help them a little bit here and there? Because if you're hanging on to the bumper as they're dragging you, it's going to hurt and they're going to drag you if they don't think you're on the bus. So for me, with my kids, I try not to say like, look, Limitless, the the, the subtitle is how to ignore everyone, carve your own path and live your best life. So people were, when that book came out, people were always like, so do your kids, like, are they just amazing? Because they got all this great advice from this life coach. And I was like, no, the first understood, it's like how to ignore everybody. My kids have embodied that, like, <laughs> like but I can kind of just be on their bus, not Mm. saying that's a bad idea, but like, well, let's, you know, do you want to maybe brainstorm about how that idea might manifest in your life? Right. Mm -hmm. Because when we're 15, 16, 17 years old, somebody says, pick a path, pick a major, pick a career, pick Mm -hmm. a trade. And we're like, okay. 
but we don't have a frontal lobe at that age. So we literally don't have the capacity to make good, sound, logical decisions when we're asked to make one that's going to affect the very rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. So at 25, at 35, at 45, we wake up and we're like, is this all there is? Like, is this mm -hmm. all I'm meant for? And we have these quarter life, midlife crises because mm -hmm. we think we can only be the identity, the I am a blank. And we're so afraid mm. to not do that because we're afraid. What are our parents going to say? What's society going to say? What are we going to do? So, you know, I think the first thing we have to do is ask ourselves, like, where did my definition of success come from? And, right. and even if it was one that I loved, is it still right for me now? Is it still changed? Yes. Yes. I love how you point that out. I really think that one of the most common patterns and obstacles that really keeps people from living their best life is by creating a life based on other people's expectations. That right there. Yes. And, and, and the expectation that we are never going to grow and change. Well, that's what I was going to say, because then at, at once you start to get clear on that, being open and having this, you know, growth mindset, this more agile mindset that this is what it is now, but it can look different in 10 years. Because another thing that was different between, you know, parents, our parents' generation was getting one job and staying with it until yes. you get social security. And like, that's not how we operate these days. And I remember the transition and the things they would say about a younger generation who's always switching jobs and they're moving around. But the reality is exactly what you're saying is it depends on the chapter and the season of my life that I'm in, what kind of work that I want to do, that I desire to do. And also one that would also serve my lifestyle and the quality of life that I'm looking to create for myself and or my family. And by the way, I can tell you that in 20 years of doing executive search, I interviewed thousands of people and the, the most interesting people, actually, let me rephrase that. The only interesting people that I interviewed, and I interviewed thousands of people were the ones who took left turns and right turns and U-turns mm -hmm. because that's where they learn what they love, what they're passionate about, what they want to invest in. Like everyone's always like, follow your passion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the world's worst career advice because mm -hmm. follow your passion says all you need to do is just find your passion and then you just follow it and the money will flow. It's mm -hmm. going to be great. And what that tells you is that the minute something doesn't work, the minute things go wrong, the minute you get rejected, the minute you get a no, you go, oh, I guess this must not be my passion. I'll go do something else. But the truth is that your passion is going to tear you apart. It is going to gut you. It might gut your bank account too while you're figuring it out. But that's why you listen to podcasts like this. You watch TED Talks. You go to conferences. You network. You learn. You grow. It's you remain about, a student of life. You remain a student of life because it's not about following your passion. It's about investing in your passion because it's the falling down and the getting up and the falling down and the getting up that makes you great at your passion. And doesn't your passion deserve that anyway? Yes. And to add to that, your passion isn't a direct line to success, which is exactly <laughs> what you're saying here. Absolutely. Now, and how do we even find our passion if we don't try lots of different things? Like, how do you know what you're the only thing that like the only the sure sign I know that somebody is passionate about something is that, like everyone says, tell me what you would do if you knew you wouldn't fail. That's your passion. And I'm like, that's horse hooey. Like, <laughs> tell me what you would do if you knew for sure you would fail. Mm -hmm. And yet you will do it over and over and over and mm -hmm. over and mm -hmm. fall down and get up and fall down and get up because that 
is your passion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can tell you as someone who is living out their passion and had a ton of obstacles and challenges in the way, that is the only tried and true way to make sure that you are passionate about the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Is that, is that you still enjoy it or at least will fight for it in the low times? Absolutely. So, I mean, like, I know you're interviewing me, but I would love to hear like as you're going through this and you're starting to face those first challenges and those first obstacles, mm-hmm. how did you say like, okay, like I'm going to keep going. This is this, this, I'm not good at this yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But I want to get there. Like, how did you have the the fortitude or the strength to be able to get to the point where you were like, okay, I'm starting to now see that there is possibility here for me. I think it's a combination of things because the first one isn't what I did, but it's what I felt. Mm. And I think definitely for me, this vision of the work that I can do that's going to impact and that I am doing that's impacting lives all over the world. uh, It was a vision that didn't make sense. So I knew that it was coming from my higher self because it felt so right. Yes. And so the fact that it, like, I didn't actually conceptualize it for myself, but it started to just be downloaded in me. And then it felt like this gravitational pull. I was like, you know, it's it's kind of like when you light the fire, you can try to, you know, put it out, but you can't if it really is the thing that's pulling you. So that was the first thing. But then the other piece of it is, I I know that I've won the family lottery because my family has been so loving and supportive and, and in ways where I was doubting myself, they kept reminding me like, Hey, but you can, but you can. And that's a piece of what I think you're talking about in this wonder hell is even when I did reach these different levels of success, these specific manifestations that came to life, I was like, Oh my gosh, I did this. And then this month, and then we grew to that. And all of it kept, there were still these moments where I'm like, but can you sustain it? Is this going to continue to work? Will this do everything? And I remember having family and friends, like I call my closest friends, my family. Yes. Family. Yes. They would just speak that truth. And so I feel like the combination of what I was feeling and the people who were pouring into me helped me to stay energized and and helps me, I'll say, stay energized to continue to fuel this work. I love that you brought up family because (laughs) I think, you know, I talk on stage a lot about how like there are people in our life who have been there historically, and they might not be the people who should be there moving forward. And they are the ones who, as we mentioned, are jealous or they're worried or they're scared or whatever the things are. And a lot of times people will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I have those people in my life, but some of them are my family members. Like, what do I do with them? And we can't necessarily burn the bridge with our family. I mean, we can, but like most of us aren't going to burn the bridge with our family members unless they're, you know, terrible, horrible, you know, abusive people. But we can turn down the volume on them by turning up the volume on other people in our lives. And so, you know, I talk a lot about this concept of family, right? The people who like, they pick you up, they they never let you down. They see you, they see what you're really capable of. Like, I think one of my superpowers, well, my only super, I'm not one of it. It is my one superpower is that I can see somebody in a very short order in a conversation with them, see what makes them great and reflect it back on them in ways that they can either see it for the first time ever or finally believe it enough to act upon it. Like I have talked to people like 
who are 200 pounds overweight into running marathons. I've talked career employees into starting their own businesses. I've talked people into, you know, running for office because they're so irate about an issue and they've been successful in these, these ways. I don't just like walk around, you know, <laughs> malpractice, like using my powers for, for evil, but because, and it's not that I, I'm magical and I make them be able to do it. I just show them this piece of themselves and I give them this permission to be ambitious about something that they've kind of always secretly wondered if it was possible for them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they have family members that are like, don't do it. Don't try too hard. Don't you know, like get too big. Don't, mm-hmm. don't stretch too far. Don't fly too close to the sun. And they sort of keep them small because they're trying to keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And, or, you know, maybe they're coming out of this, you know, history of fear or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we have to make sure that we're surrounding ourselves with these family members who mm-hmm. see us. And 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 I I keep saying the word see because I think that there's a million billion miles between being seen and being loved. Like a lot of us grew up, we were loved. You're a good kid, mm-hmm. you get good grades, you clear the dishes, you're nice to guests. Like I love you, you're a good kid. It feels transactional, right? Mm-hmm. But can you fly your flag and like be who you really are and want to be that person who you really are and still be loved, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you let be people seen really and see loved, you, yeah. and you be seen mm-hmm. and also loved because of the person that you are. And I think our families, they see us, they really see us. And sometimes they're also like, oh, and by the way, Karen, your goals are too small, right? Like this thing. And you're like, oh, no. You're right. Yes. And then they say, and I'm going to help you get there. And you're like, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. let's do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think family, like, you know, I think family is, is one of those things that like, we all have to have family around us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if we don't have a good family, we can turn up the volume on the family. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked a little bit about what are some of these like small shifts that we need to go through. And I'm curious, do you have any like recommended specific practices for individuals who are feeling stuck? Maybe they aren't, you know, seeing that potential. Maybe they're looking to, or maybe they are, and they want to redefine their goals and their aspirations. What kind of practices can they start to put in place so they can get unstuck? Well, I often say to people that they should pick a goal that kind of scares them Mm -hmm. a lot. Like if your goal doesn't freak you out a little bit, like you're probably setting your goal too small. Mm -hmm. And how do you figure out a goal that's going to be really exciting to you? What gets you interested? Like, if you do you go and watch the marathon in your town every year and think, God, what a triumph of human spirit. I wish I could do it. Do you see people who are entrepreneurs and you think, God, if only I could maybe think about possibly one day, right? So, like, what are the things that you're attracted to? The the what kinds of shows do you watch? What kind of sports do you watch? What are the things that you gravitate towards? And can you see any part of yourself in that story? I live in Boston for years and years and years. I watched the Boston Marathon and I was mm-hmm. like, wow, I could never do that. Isn't that incredible? And I had never run in my life. Like I ran the first mile of my life when I was 39 years old of my life. And it took me six weeks to run that mile. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ran that mile is because I walked into my kid's school one day and I saw one of the teachers and I was like, wow, you look amazing. Like you look strong and fit. She was 65 years old. And she was like glowing from within. And I was like, tell me, like, tell me, like, what, like, is there a new man in your life? Like, what's happening? You look amazing. And she's like, well, there is a new man in my life, but his name is Mike, Coach Mike. And then she proceeds to drag me to this boot camp. So for like six weeks, we're doing calisthenics and trying to run the smile. At the end of six weeks, I run it. 
And then I'm all hopped up on endorphins. So I was like, if I string three of those together, maybe I could do a 5k. And then I did six weeks later. And I say, do not run because run, say running would be like an insult to runners. But after that, I was like, well, if I string two of those together, maybe I could do a 10k. And as I said, I live in Boston. So you know where this is going. I'm now training for my sixth marathon. We, a lot of times feel stuck and we don't create these big goals because we think I don't have the confidence to do it. Someone Mm. else is confident. Someone else can do it. But the truth is we don't wake up one day confident. I didn't wake up one day, walk into my kid's school and go, I'm confident that I can run a marathon. I Mm -hmm. walked in and I was like, I'm confident that every part of my body hurts and I want to change this. I don't want to be in this anymore, but competence led to confidence, showing myself that I could do the small things. So, you know, what I often say to people is take a crazy big goal that scares you, but then make the bar super low. Like I want to run a marathon. You don't say, okay, good. I'm going to go run a 5k next week. You go, I'm going to run for five minutes. Right. Once I've run for five minutes, I'm going to run for 10 minutes. When I've run for 10 minutes, I'll run for 15, 20, 30. And that turns into the 5k. So create these giant goals put the biggest ass kicker, you know, in your sidecar, mm-hmm. let them know you're doing it because then you got to be accountable to someone. Right. Mm-hmm. But then set the daily goals, super, super, super low. So you get the dopamine hit, you're moving forward and you're showing yourself competence so that you have the confidence to know you actually can. Mm, and I'm telling, there's so much packed in here, d- dear listener. I'm sure you were writing frivolously, but the bi- the biggest thing here is that when we feel stuck, by default, we sometimes allow ourselves to stay stuck. And it's usually in my work I've seen, it's obviously the thoughts that we keep like ruminating on. Yes. That's what keeps us stuck. And what I love how you just like painted this picture is to get unstuck, even if you take a small action, it starts to build that momentum in the right direction. Yes. You know, there are studies that show that if somebody is trying to make a decision about something big, like, should I leave my spouse? Should I apply for the big job? Should I buy the house? Like what some big life decision that if they flip a coin and the coin says heads, go for it. They are happier years later, even if the decision didn't work out. Than they are. Mm. If the coin said tails, stay where you are. Mm. It turns out that action beats stagnation every day of the week, because every even if it didn't work out, they're like, I learned something about myself. I got brave. I tried mm-hmm. something new. I did something. So this idea like that we shouldn't go forward, we should stay still. Now, sometimes staying still and gathering more information is an action. So that's Absolutely. okay. As long mm-hmm. as it's intentional, right? You have a time limit. It's intentional. I like to have these public demonstrations of like, I'm going to do a thing. They say that uh, charity runners finish marathons at higher rates than people who just sign up because charity runners have raised money from other people. They've got people who are watching them and depending on them. So even if they walk across the finish line, they still commit publicly and they finish. So I think this, this notion that like, you don't, you don't have to be confident for the whole thing. Like, as I mentioned, I speak on stages, I get up on stage and I speak for 60 minutes and it's terrifying. But how do I do it? I'm not confident for 60 minutes. I have to be confident for 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. I get up on stage and I'm like, hello, Cleveland. And then Cleveland roars back and I'm like, awesome, great, we're in it. And now there's momentum and it's good. And like, I've got energy and I, I, I just have to be confident for 60 seconds. So like, if you're feeling stuck, like just start. And if the starting is, 
I don't like this. You've now learned something. So it's not a failure. It's progress. You've eliminated one option and now you can explore the next ones. Good for you. You've gotten something done. Yes. The very essence of a growth mindset. I love it. I love it. Now we've talked a little bit about, okay, the pursuit of success. Let's talk about when we are in that space, which I hope everyone listening here uh, is in pursuit or they feel like they're in that space, but I really feel like success isn't like a completion point. I feel like again, (laughs) as we we talked about, right. If you are, uh, if you maintain being a student of life, you may reach different levels of success, but let's just talk about this for a moment, wherever we are in our, our own pursuit of success. How can individuals navigate that imposter syndrome, you know, that doubt, that what if, that are, I'm not sure, like, especially when they have achieved significant success in their field? How do you coach people on navigating that? So, as you mentioned in the introduction, when I found myself in Wonder Hell, I talked to a hundred different Olympic medalists, startup unicorns, uh, uh, CEOs, entrepreneurs, activists, creatives, philanthropists. I, needed to find a way out of wonder hell. And one of the things that shocked me the most is that every one of them at every age and at every stage, whether they have just sold a billion dollar company or are starting a new one, or if they literally have like an Olympic medal in their back pocket and they're about to go down the next ski run, every one of them had imposter syndrome. And I was like, how can that be? Like, how can that be? It turns out 70% of us have imposter syndrome and a fair amount of the 30% that are left over have this Dunning-Kruger where like they should have imposter syndrome, but they don't. Here's what I learned. The people who thrived in wonder hell, they didn't see these feelings as, as warning signs. They actually saw them as incredibly helpful allies. I told them that they were on the right track. They took the idea of imposter syndrome and they said, that's actually pretty amazing. This means I've gone to a room I didn't think I'd be in. I'm trying something I didn't know that I could get to do. They were able to say, it's not, oh no, I haven't done this before, but oh, wow, I haven't done this before. And so they were able to renegotiate their relationship with all of these, you know, tsunami of emotions that come at us, the good, the bad, the ugly, when we see this version of ourselves and realize that the only one who gets to choose which one we become is us. So the ability to understand that everyone else who's in this room didn't, they weren't born in this room, right? So everyone else is at this place where they're also probably feeling that same experience mm-hmm. of not knowing if they belong, worrying if we're going to think we're a fraud. They're faking it till they make it. And by the way, the ones who fake it till they make it, they are building a foundation on a house of cards so that even when they make it, they don't even know if they want it because they're not even real. But back when I worked in the White House, I was faking it till I made it And all the time I was doing it, I was missing the conversations that were happening, the relationships that were being formed, being able to look outside of my own narcissistic fear and actually see how deals were being made. And so I was so busy faking it till I made it that I didn't really make it. Mm. So I think we have to remember that this this feeling of imposter syndrome, it's not a bad sign. It's Mm -hmm. actually it's actually kind of a congratulations, like go Mm. us. Mm, I really love that reframe. It's funny. I, I have seen this time and time again, also working with CEOs, working with founders. You are absolutely right. It does not matter what level you are in your career or your success, unless you are a full-blown narcissist, I think. <laughs> At some point you are going to experience this, this, but it's so healthy. 
it is so healthy when you are able to apply that reframe and not see it as a detriment, but yes. instead seeing it as something that just comes with the territory of trying something new and being in new spaces and stretching yourself beyond where you were into where you want to go. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's also just talk for a moment about the gall of the term imposter syndrome. Mm. Like imposter syndrome was a term coined in psychology in the 1970s when a bunch of people who didn't look like straight cisgendered white dudes suddenly started finding their way into the senior positions and companies. Mm. And so suddenly it's like, oh, imposter syndrome. You're an imposter. You don't right. belong here. Or you have a syndrome. Are you feeling sick? Maybe you should sit down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it is it is something that has been created to make those of us who don't look like, think like, pray like, love like those who have been typically in power, right? It's it's created so that we should feel like there's something wrong with us. Right. Like we're but an outsider and we're not meant to be there. Right. When in fact, mm -hmm. the very systems that were created were not created by people like us or mm -hmm. for people like us. So perhaps it's not that, you know, we are the problem. Perhaps it's the systems that are the problem. And mm -hmm. can I curse on your show? My left. Yes. You okay. <laughs> there is a great quote on the internet that is, I think uh, it has never quite been traced back to Sigmund Freud. It was probably coined by a really super exacerbated woman. The quote is this, before you diagnose that there's something wrong with you, maybe look around and make sure you're not just surrounded by assholes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So it's not imposter syndrome. Like, mm. I don't feel like I'm a, I have a syndrome because I'm the first of my kind in the C-suite. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with the C-suite that it took this long for someone to look like me, act like mm -hmm. me, think like me, pray like me to get to the C-suite. Yes. Congratulations Lauren. for evolving. Yes. Let's celebrate evolution and equity. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, I was wondering if you have any uh, advice for entrepreneurs. You know, the work that you're doing right now is obviously making a positive impact in the world. And it seems like it's fueling your, your personal desires for success, which is amazing. Again, I could just, I heard very early on how you're like, oh, I thought that I was going to be, I made it on the uh, Washington uh, bestseller, Washington Post. Now I want to do Wall Street and it happened. So I see you setting your eye and you're hitting those marks, which is fantastic. So what kind of advice do you have professionals who are also looking to make a positive impact in the world while? they are striving for that personal success. Any advice or tidbits? Yeah. So this is going to sound kind of counterintuitive, but I'm going to say my advice is this. You're not that important. Okay. What do I mean by that? Break it when, down for us. Yeah. <laughs> let me break it down. When, when my company was like five years old and my kids were five and three years old, I had, I was on a number of community boards my husband has a very stressful, busy job. Mm -hmm. I was trying to be all things to all people everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I sat down one day with a woman who had been very successful in business. And I was like, give me some advice. And she's like, I don't understand. You got a health, got healthy kids, a happy marriage, a thriving business. What's the problem? Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to yell at my kids a lot. She's like, well, why? So I explained my day where, you know, I, I, uh, how I try to be like everywhere at once. Like I talked about being on the playground and having my cell phone. So I was actually still in the office and all of that. And I needed to be on every single committee of every single community board to make a difference in the world. And she looked at me and she's like, Laura, you, you know, you're not that important. And I was like, wow, what do you mean? Like, I sure feel that important. Like, I feel that important to my family, to my husband, to the community, to my staff, to my clients. And she's like, you're not. She's like, if you are with your kids at the playground, but you're 
on the phone with your clients, first of all, they know you're not fully focused on them. So that's a problem. If you can't leave your company for an hour to take your kids to the playground, you're kind of a micromanager. Your kids see that you're not really there. Like she just kind of broke it down for me that like my trying to be everywhere, all things to all people meant that I was nowhere and nothing to anybody. Mm. And then she said, there are places in your life where you are that important. There are places in your life where you are that important. What are the things that only you can do, right? Those moments where you're being a mom, the moments where you're being a wife, the moments where you are like crushing the thing for your client that you are the very first call where they need you. It's like everything else doesn't matter. We have to figure out where we are that important and double down there. So my advice to anybody who is trying to figure out how do I make you know an impact in the world while I'm also building my business, while I'm also building my family, is stop saying yes to everything. Stop trying to solve your ego's need to help mm-hmm. and try to figure out what the problems are where you can actually contribute something. And that goes from asking the question, how can I help? to asking the question, what needs to happen, right? What needs to happen for this to move forward? With my kids, I could say, how can I help? Let me help you with your algebra. I mean, let's be real. I can't help them with their algebra. I will be Googling that. No way. But like, what needs to happen? Well, what needs to happen is I don't understand algebra. Okay, well, let's watch some Khan Academy videos. Maybe we can get you a tutor, right? Like, yeah, like what needs to happen is not me inserting myself into this thing that I don't really know. What needs to happen when, you know, know, my staff member has a problem? If I solve this problem for them, then I'm the hero of the story and they're not empowered, right? How, what needs to happen is they need to, understand better uh, to create a system so that they can solve the problem next time. Like what needs to happen is a much better question for us to ask. And when we ask the question, what needs to happen? Suddenly we see what the problem needs. We become less important, except in the places where what needs to happen is they need our mind share for this particular thing right now. So yeah, I know it's sort of counterintuitive to be like, we just need to realize that we're not that important if we want to actually make more change where we are that important. But that's, that's my advice. I appreciate that breakdown. I think that is so wise because what you're really telling us is to be very intentional. Yes. To be intentional about where we're putting our time, our energy. And when we are that intentional, we are able to, well, I was about to say bring things into balance, but that's not true. Things are never fully in balance. We bring them into alignment. We bring bring them into alignment alignment. where the very best of what we do, right? Our highest and best use. The things only we can do, the very best use of what of our time is being called upon to solve a problem that we actually care about. And we're being rewarded for solving that problem in a way that is financially, emotionally, karmically interesting to us. Right. Mm-hmm. That's when we're in alignment. That's that's when it doesn't feel like work. Right. Mm-hmm. That's when it feels like everything we are matches everything we do. But we can't do that if we're trying to be everything all the time to everyone. And so all that it's like. I don't think we're too busy. I think we're just too busy doing things that don't actually matter to us. So right. if your time is filled from morning to night with things that actually matter to you. Then we're back to what we first started talking about, where it's your passion and it doesn't feel like work. But it starts by asking you like yourself, what is the highest and best use of my time? Or where am I just being pulled into stuff? Because by habit, I kind of needed to feel super important. Mm-hmm. And I've inserted myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So last question for you, Laura, is there any way to break out of wonder hell? So here's the bad news. There's actually no way to break out of wonder hell because on the other side of this wonder hell, when you've achieved something, 
you see another version of yourself and another version of yourself. So on the other side of this wonder hell is just the next one and the next one. And if we're lucky, the next one after that. But the good news is that wonder hell only presents itself to people who have more in them, right? Mm -hmm. You will not see a future potential, a future version of yourself. As I mentioned, I'm training for my sixth marathon right now. There is no part of me that sees an ultra marathon in my future, right? There's no wonder hell there. I have run three of the U.S. majors. There are three European major or, or international majors, and I've just signed up for Berlin, which is one of them. And in signing up for Berlin, there's also Tokyo and London. So I'm like, I'm not really just signing up for Berlin. I'm probably signing up for three more marathons. <laughs> that's my wonder help. But there's no part of me that's like, and then I'll do an ultra, right? So if you see this version of yourself, that's great news because it means that there's actually more inside of you. Wonder how only presents itself to people who are worthy of it. Mm, we are going to have to close on that because it's too <laughs> perfectly said to say it any other way. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much. Thank you for leaning into this concept for even doing a little more research because by you uncovering and unpacking these different stories through these conversations that you were having, you've found a way that we can all connect more deeply because it's creating transparency in our expectations around success. And it's also giving us a space to be vulnerable and more honest about what it really looks like to pursue success and, and to create a, a lifestyle that feels successful. There's so many different complexities in there. Hey, that's what it means to be human. We are beautifully complex beings. Uh, but the more that we share our stories and we connect through that, the less alone we feel as we continue to pursue our greatest passions. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great fun. <laughs> this has been In the Details. If you like the show, tell a friend. For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcasts.